Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topsher. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. A poll shows Trump is leading his GOP rivals. Z replaces the leaders of China's elite nuclear force. The U.S. and the Taliban wrap up their first formal talks in two years. Another drone attack strikes Moscow. A former Australian childcare worker is charged with abusing 91 children. The UK acknowledges that IS attacks on Yazidis constitute genocide. The White House recommends curbing the FBI's surveillance powers. Myanmar's Aung San Suu Kyi is pardoned on some charges. A new Illinois law allows foreigners to become cops. And UNESCO recommends adding Venice to its endangered list. In our top story, according to a recent poll, Trump's lead is soaring over DeSantis and GOP rivals. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, News Nation, Guardian, Politico, and Al Jazeera. The first New York Times-Siena College poll of the 2024 presidential campaign showed former President Trump leading his rivals for the Republican nomination, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, by a large margin when it was released this week. The poll found 54% of respondents said they were most likely to vote for Trump if the GOP primary were held today, while 17% chose second place DeSantis. Among the rest of the field, which includes former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, no one received more than 3% support. Trump held solid leads in all major demographics, men and women, younger and older voters, college-educated and non-college-educated, moderates and conservatives, and those living in cities and rural and suburban areas. From July 23rd through the 27th, the poll surveyed over 1,300 registered voters nationwide with an oversample of 818 registered Republicans. These poll results come while Trump is dealing with several legal issues, including federal charges related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents after his presidency and state charges related to falsifying business records in New York. Thank you, Eric, for laying out the facts on our first story. And on this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll begin this round with a Republican narrative from Town Hall. You can't shake Trump's grip on the Republican Party and its voters. They simply love him. And it's obvious that every indictment against him makes Trump stronger in the eyes of the GOP. It's almost getting to the point to consider if the rest of the field gets behind Trump to make sure President Biden is defeated in the general election. The Democratic narrative comes from Alternet. This disturbing poll shows that Republicans are cultish when it comes to Trump. Despite Trump's chronicled shortcomings, not to mention the indictments he's facing, the GOP still overwhelmingly has his back. Republicans have put the country in a precarious position with 2024 just around the corner. And we frequently get statistics-based nerd narratives on this show. This is according to the Metaculous Prediction Community, and it says there's a 75% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for president in the 2024 election. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Z replaces leaders of China's elite nuclear force. Here are the facts as agreed upon by China Daily, BBC News, Bloomberg, the South China Morning Post, Sky News, and the Wall Street Journal. 
PRC President Xi Jinping on Monday elevated two senior People's Liberation Army, or PLA, officers from the rank of lieutenant general to general, the highest rank in the military, appointing them to head the PLA rocket force. Former Deputy Navy Chief Wang Haobin and Party Central Committee member Xu Shen were respectively named replacements for General Li Yuchao, who headed the unit, and his Deputy General Liu Guangbin, whose whereabouts are currently unknown. This is the first time in 40 years that the top role of the PLA rocket force went to someone from outside the unit, suggesting concerns over the upper tier of the branch managing the country's nuclear arsenal. It was reported last week that former commanders Li and Liu are currently under an anti-corruption investigation. This shakeup, the largest disruption to the PLA in years, is reminiscent of the 2014 removal of former deputy chairs of the Central Military Commission, Xu Kaihao and Guo Boshang, who were removed and put on trial for corruption. The PLA rocket force has grown in recent years despite an overall downsizing of China's military reflecting Beijing's strategy of using long-range nuclear-capable ballistic missiles to enhance its capabilities of nuclear deterrence and counterattack. Melissa, thank you so much for the facts. Our first spin is a pro-China narrative, and it's coming from South China Morning Post. This major reshuffle was necessary because many formerly reputable senior generals have degenerated into corrupt officials after moving to Beijing and engaging with defense-related companies. Entering its second decade, Xi's far-reaching anti-corruption campaign has kept rolling, and he remains fully committed to tackling this issue at all levels. And we have an anti-China narrative from The Spectator. China's government often uses corruption as an excuse for purging those it deems to be not loyal enough to the community party. Once Foreign Minister Qin Gang disappeared, it was only a matter of time before this type of military shakeup would happen. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 53% chance that Z will continue leading China in 2030. The Taliban in the United States hold their first official talks since the Afghanistan takeover. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, APA, and BBC News. Taliban leaders and U.S. officials wrapped up a two-day meeting in Qatar on Monday for the first time since the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan two years ago. The U.S. State Department said that officials had told Afghanistan's Taliban during the talks that Washington was open to technical dialogue regarding the economy and counter-narcotics. According to Kabul, Taliban officials focused on the lifting of travel restrictions and other sanctions on the group's leaders and the return of central bank assets held abroad in their discussions. The two delegations also reportedly exchanged views on the present situation in Afghanistan, with U.S. representatives voicing grave concern regarding detentions, media crackdowns, and limits on religious practice. In 2021, when the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, the U.S. froze around $7 billion of the war-torn country's central bank assets held in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Half of those funds are now in a Swiss-based Afghan fund. Afghanistan is in desperate need of currency as 23 million people depend on assistance from the World Food Program for their survival. No country officially recognizes the Taliban administration, but they're effectively in control over the entire country. Okay, thank you, Eric, for those facts. We'll start this round of spin with a pro-establishment narrative from Voice of America. 
These talks don't represent a change in U.S. policy of any kind, but rather an attempt to address the egregious human rights abuses committed by the fundamentalist de facto rulers, as well as the recent marginalization of Afghan women and girls. It's in the U.S.'s best interest to engage with the Taliban appropriately to solve these issues. Al Jazeera gives us the establishment critical narrative. Afghanistan is in a terrible situation, facing an unprecedented humanitarian crisis. So talks are necessary if the situation is to improve, as the main driver of this suffering has been the sanctions and banking restrictions imposed by the U.S. Given that the Taliban has succeeded in halting violence and preventing another destructive civil war, it's about time for the international community to change its approach. And here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 25% chance that the U.S. will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. Another drone attack hits Moscow. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, TASS, and the Associated Press. Russia has blamed Ukraine for another drone attack on Moscow that took place on Tuesday, the second in a week and the fifth since two drones were brought down over the Kremlin in May. The country's defense ministry said two drones were shot down in the wider Moscow region, namely the areas of Odintsovo and Narofomensk while the third was brought down by signal jamming over the capital, striking a non-residential skyscraper in the Moscow city complex. The same building was also struck in Sunday's attack. A Russian emergency services official told the news outlet TASS that preliminary data showed that there had been no casualties following a drone attack on a tower in the IQ quarter of the Moscow city complex. They added that the building's glazing above floor 17 sustained damages. The high-rise building, located roughly four and a half miles from the Kremlin, reportedly houses a number of government agencies, including the headquarters of the Ministry of Economic Development, the Ministry of Digital Development and Communications, and the Ministry of Industry and Trade. As has been the case with previous attacks on Moscow, the city's Vnukovo airport was temporarily shut down and its flights redirected. Operations resumed a little later in the day. Meanwhile, keeping in line with their policy of not commenting on attacks inside Russia, Ukraine has not claimed responsibility for the incident. However, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky did make a statement after the attack, saying, Gradually, the war is returning to the territory of Russia, to its symbolic centers and military bases. This is an inevitable, natural, and absolutely fair process. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Ukraine is resorting to terror attacks inside Russian territory because its counteroffensive is failing to have any real impact on the war. This is the act of a desperate nation trying to weaken Moscow. The pro-Ukraine narrative comes from the BBC. After launching an illegal invasion of Ukraine, it is inevitable that the consequences of such a conflict return home to Russia. Attacks inside the country are fully justified. We find out what the nerds have to say with Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 4% chance that there will be a deadly clash between the U.S. and Russian armed forces before the year 2024. In our next story, an Australian childcare worker has been charged with sex abuse of 91 children. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Washington Post, Guardian, Independent, and CBS. A former childcare worker in Australia has been charged with more than 1,600 sexual abuse offenses against 91 young girls. The charges include 136 counts of rape and 110 counts of sexual intercourse with a child under 10, 
according to the Australian Federal Police. The abuses were recorded. Police found images and videos on the dark web in 2014, leading to a multi-year investigation to identify the accused and the victims. The alleged crimes took place at a dozen childcare centers in Brisbane and Sydney, as well as overseas, over a 15-year period. Australian officials describe it as one of the most horrific child sex abuse cases in the country's history. The man, who hasn't been named, was arrested in August of 2022. He's scheduled to appear in Queensland court on August 21st. Thanks for those horrifying facts, Eric. We'll begin this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative. And this comes from the Sydney Morning Herald. Australian police are failing victims of sexual abuse by not taking allegations seriously. The majority of reports aren't followed up on and don't lead to any arrests or legal action. Sexual abuse isn't being adequately addressed in the country, leading to horrific cases like this, where a childcare worker was free to abuse children for 15 years. The pro-establishment narrative comes from the Australian Federal Police. Operation Tenterfield, the investigation into this case, was complex and involved many highly skilled specialists. The crimes took place in many locations, including across international borders, and an immense amount of child abuse material was found on the dark web. Identifying the locations, the victims, and ultimately the perpetrator required collaboration and perseverance for justice to be served. The UK acknowledges that IS attacks on Yazidis constitute genocide. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the UK government, Sky News, Forbes, and Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, the UK officially acknowledged that the minority Yazidi people faced genocide at the hands of the Islamic State in Iraq in 2014. The recognition comes after Germany jailed an IS militant in 2021 for crimes against the Yazidis. Lord Ahmad, the UK Minister of State for the Middle East, made the announcement saying that the Yazidi population suffered immensely nine years ago and the repercussions are still felt to this day. In 2014, IS persecuted the Kurdish-speaking minority over their religious beliefs, killing thousands of men and subjecting women and young girls to enslavement and sexual assault in Iraq and Syria. As a part of their effort, IS also abducted Yazidi boys to be trained and used as child soldiers. More than 2,700 women and children reportedly remain unaccounted for. With this latest acknowledgement, the UK now recognizes a total of five genocides, including the Holocaust, Rwanda, Srebrenica, and Cambodia. Several bodies and governments have found that the acts carried out by IS against the Yazidis meet the legal definition of genocide, including the US, Canada, the Netherlands, the European Parliament, and the UN, among others. Those were the facts, and our round of spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Times of Israel. Acknowledgement is the first step. By recognizing the atrocities that took place against the Yazidi people, the UK has opened the door for accountability and justice, which will include criminal actions against any British-born perpetrators and assistance for the victims. Equally as important, it sends a message to the world that these outrageous acts cannot go unchecked. And here's the establishment critical narrative from The Guardian. While this is a much-needed move, it's not enough. IS fighters may have committed these atrocities and should undoubtedly be punished, but several international communities were silent witnesses and must also be held accountable for their failure to prevent the genocide of the Yazidi people. This should serve as a warning to the international community that they have obligations and they must abide by them. The White House recommends curbing FBI surveillance powers. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Reuters, The Hill, Washington Post, and Fox News. On Monday, the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, or PAIB, a White House body, recommended that U.S. President Joe Biden limit the FBI's access to a warrantless surveillance program while also urging lawmakers to renew the legislation that underpins it. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, allows the government to collect the communications of foreigners living outside of the U.S. without a warrant. Section 102 is set to expire this year, with some lawmakers calling for reform of the surveillance law. The PIAB has said a failure to renew Section 102 would be one of the worst intelligence failures of our time. However, the board has recommended that the Attorney General limit the FBI's ability to conduct non-national security-related 702 queries amid concerns over improper use by the Bureau. Data collected under Section 702 includes communications that foreigners have with U.S. citizens opening Americans up to warrantless surveillance. A FISA court opinion published in July revealed that the FBI made improper Section 702 queries on a senator, state lawmakers, and a state court judge. A separate court opinion claimed the FBI misused Section 702 more than 278,000 times between 2020 and 2021, with a PIAB member claiming the vast majority of these were compliance mistakes. Other recommendations include having the FISA court declassify the threat category a query is made under. The PIAB, however, rejected a proposal to require a warrant whenever a U.S. citizen's communications are collected under Section 702. The board also found no evidence that the FBI's alleged misuse of the program was willful or politically motivated, with the Bureau saying they look forward to, quote, engaging with Congress about the PIAB's findings. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, starting with an establishment critical narrative from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The recommendations from the PIAB only cover a fraction of the millions of backdoor searches the FBI conducts illegally on U.S. citizens, thanks to Section 702. Politicians from both sides of the aisle have threatened to let the program lapse entirely if the FBI doesn't clean up its act. As the people grow fed up with warrantless surveillance, the government needs to respect the civil liberties of the American people. National Review gives us the pro-establishment narrative. While these suggestions are welcome news, they don't change the fact that Section 702 has been an invaluable tool to keep Americans safe from harm. Information gathered under the provision has averted terrorist attacks and kept America a step ahead of adversaries. Indeed, most of the information in the president's daily briefing comes from Section 702, and agency mistakes shouldn't be allowed to discredit the program entirely. They're the coolest in the Department of Justice. They are the cool kids. They are. uh, And you know, it's funny. I didn't know what was going on until this article came out. I mean, I noticed most of the black vehicles have disappeared from my area, so I didn't know. Well, that's cool. I'm glad they're finally pulling their surveillance from... Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) In Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi is pardoned on some charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Reuters, Sky News, and The Independent. Myanmar's former leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been pardoned for five of her 19 charges by the state's military as part of an amnesty granted to over 7,000 prisoners to mark Buddhist Lent. Suu Kyi's 33-year jail sentence will now be reduced by six years. The 78-year-old has been detained by Myanmar's military since she was removed during a coup in February 2021. 
State media has confirmed that the Nobel laureate will remain under house arrest where she was moved to a week ago in the capital city of Naypyi Su Chi has consistently denied all charges centered around accusations of election fraud. The cases Su Chi has been granted clemency for include violating COVID restrictions, illegally importing and possessing walkie-talkies, as well as sedition. Su Chi was first placed under house arrest in 1989 following protests against military rule in Myanmar. Former President Win Mint, arrested at the same time as Su Chi, was also pardoned by the military junta and will now face eight years in prison for six cases, rather than 12 years for eight charges. Melissa, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is narrative A coming from Mazima. This is a merely cosmetic move. Su Chi continues to be used as a pawn at a time when the junta looks to consolidate and protect its illegitimate form of governance. The junta has continued to underestimate the support of democracy in Myanmar, and the people will not rest until the draconian era of military rule is ended. And here's a narrative B from the Bangkok Post. While recent news surrounding Su Chi is a sign of hope, the reality is that Myanmar is currently headed toward a full-blown civil war. Countries such as the U.S. continue to fund resistance forces, increasing the chances of widespread violence, which will only impede the possibility of bloodshed being ended. Neighboring countries such as Thailand, India, Bangladesh, and China, alongside the UN, must do more to help broker peace in Myanmar, rather than allow the US to fund a proxy war, which will only do harm to more civilians. Turning our attention back to the US, a new Illinois law allows non-citizens to become cops. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC Chicago, New York Post, Fox 32 Chicago, Newsweek, and Fox News. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has signed a bill that will allow non-U.S. citizens to apply for police officer positions. House Bill 3751, due to go into effect January 1st, 2024, will allow non-citizen permanent workers and recipients of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, to become police officers. Illinois reportedly has 30,000 DACA recipients living in the state and claims to have statewide officer shortages. While DACA recipients are protected from deportation, they are not granted official legal status. In 2021, Judge Andrew Hainan closed the program to new applicants, claiming that former President Barack Obama's administration didn't have the authority to enact it via executive order. The law comes as Pritzker has signed other controversial bills, including one allowing the state attorney general to crack down on pregnancy centers that allegedly use deceptive tactics to divert women pursuing abortions. Those were the facts, and here is the narrative spin. We'll start with a Republican narrative from The Blaze. Pritzker is promoting woke ideology at the expense of not only the state's police integrity, but also the law, as under federal legislation, only U.S. citizens are allowed to be cops. While he may claim his heart is in the right place, this decision will only serve to erode the public's confidence in law enforcement. We counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from NBC Chicago. Illinois' new law comes amid a record shortage of police officers, and it only applies to people who are legally allowed to work and DACA recipients who have been in the U.S. since they were children, many of which are already serving in the U.S. military. Governor Pritzker is strengthening the state's police force by growing its outreach. This is the right move. It sounds like a great experiment. I'm kind of interested to see how this goes. I'm sure the donut shops are liking this. Oh, hit them where it hurts, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> 
And in our final story today, UNESCO says Venice should be put on our endangered list. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The National, The Guardian, BBC News, and The Times of India. A new UNESCO report released on Monday has recommended adding Venice to its list of world heritage in danger to secure the historic city and its lagoon from climate change and mass tourism. The report found that the city faced irreversible damage and that corrective measures proposed by the Italian authorities are, quote, currently insufficient and not detailed enough. Though Venice is said to be deteriorating due to the combined effects of human-induced and natural changes, the report alleged that the country is slow in addressing the issue owing to a lack of overall joint strategic thinking. It's the second time that Venice, which has been designated a World Heritage Site since 1987, has been recommended to be added to UNESCO's World Heritage in Danger list. In 2021, Venice saved itself from being added to the list as Italy banned large ships, such as cruise ships, in the San Marco Canal, but couldn't reportedly implement an ambitious conservation plan for the city of canals. The World Heritage Committee, a committee of 21 UNESCO member states, is scheduled to meet in Riyadh in September to review more than 200 sites, including Kiev, and decide which cities to add to the danger list. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from BBC. UNESCO isn't wrong in its assessment. Global warming impacts Venice significantly, as rising sea levels make it vulnerable to flooding. Moreover, the city is forced to expand urban projects to accommodate millions of tourists every year. It's unfortunate, however, how UNESCO gives opinions, judgments, threats, and warnings, but doesn't provide the country any funding to make changes. And the Times gives us a narrative B. It's essential to protect important at-risk heritage sites and encourage their better preservation by labeling them in danger. Over 50 cities worldwide are listed as endangered by UNESCO for reasons such as terrorism, tourism, or want of repairs. This is an opportunity to mobilize local and national stakeholders to fix long-standing issues and regain Venice's glory. Have you ever been to Venice? I haven't. I haven't either. I guess we better hurry up and go. We <laughs> better hurry and go. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.